You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Well, welcome back to the Batuta Advocate radio show, week three in isolation, according from our respective budgie smuggler bedrooms. You're joined by myself, Clancy Overall, and of course, Errol Parker, editor-at-large. And this week, we're going back into this topic that you may have seen in the news cycle, uh, which is the global pandemic of COVID-19. A couple of weeks ago, we were joined by Dr. Norman Swan, Daddy Swan, as some people know him as, and we, we kind of talked about the early stages of policy and measures to uh, prevent the spread of COVID-19. This week, we are talking to Dr. Dan Swan, who's a researcher at the Garvin Institute and is a immunologist. You may have seen him on ABC News in recent weeks on the 7.30 report. Dan's here to talk to us about what the next few months are going to look like and, and how Australia is looking in general. Uh, thank you for joining us, Dan. How are you? Yeah, really good. Thank you. Nice to, nice to be with you. Now, how would you best describe what an immunologist is to the everyday punter? Yeah, so it's an interesting specialty uh, because it doesn't exist in many countries around the world. And it was really the foresight of a couple of pioneers in the field here in Australia, Ron Penny and Tony Batson, who took the view that um, the immune system is the root cause of a lot of medical problems, things like autoimmune diseases, really common things like allergies. And so a lot of the specialties in Australia are based on an organ, like you might be a heart specialist or a brain specialist. But all the way back then, 60 years ago, you couldn't really see the immune system. It's kind of like this nebulous thing that floats around in your blood, does a whole lot of different things. And so they foresaw that um, the immune system was something that needed to be its own specialty so that you could study sort of underlying disease-causing processes yep. in one field. So they put a field together and yeah, so my job, um, I've got a few different jobs. I've got three different jobs. So I see patients with different immune disorders, different types of immunological problems. Um, I work in the laboratory where we do people's tests, do people's immune tests. And then I do research into the genetic, genetics of uh, immune diseases too. Now, can you tell us a little bit about how you would, for one, how you found yourself in, in this particular job? It sounds like something you don't uh, aspire to as a 10-year-old, you know, when everyone else is talking about astronauts and, and fire <laughs> engines. Was there a path you kind of became aware of in your study and went down? Yeah, so we're really lucky in Australia that um, most of our large teaching hospitals have an immunology unit. Mm -hmm. And so when you're a sort of a junior doctor rotating through different terms, people sort of want to try a little bit of everything, try before you buy. So you did a bit of emergency medicine, a bit of psychiatry, a bit of surgery. Um, and I was lucky enough to do a couple of immunology terms. So yeah, just got to see how interesting the field was. We have a really great array of different types of diseases that we look after. They tend to be really weird and rare diseases. So yeah, that's what sort of sparked my interest when I was a youngster. Um, and like I said, you know, we have a great tradition here in Australia of people in immunology. And so that, that's how I got into that. As an immunologist, how have the past couple of months been? few like have they been off the charts busy or is this really what you've been training for really <laughs> so it's mainly been my colleagues uh, my amazing colleagues in microbiology the people who study viruses um, that they've obviously yep. had to totally step up for example you know to make a test for this new virus people work round the clock people have no idea how much work went in in january and february to make a test as quickly as possible to be available here in australia and then the epidemiologists and the public health units. Um, so when there's a start of a pandemic like this, this is a really viral problem. And so they're the ones that really need to step up and, and they're the ones that really did all the work that got Australia to the point 
where, you know, the, our curb was really behind those other countries, America and Europe. We did such a great job, or they did such a great job, of protecting our borders from viral cases coming into the country. Um, and that's the reason why we're in the position we're in now, because of their great work in January and February. I've had much less to do with it from that point of view. You know, I've been part of um, the hospital's preparations, obviously. So it's a little bit different. Now, you've gone viral with a couple of posts online talking about the pandemic, the outbreak in Australia specifically. And in fact, you were one of the first kind of encounters I had with the term flatten the curve. How would yeah. you say Australia has done and is doing from when yeah. you first kind of popped your head up, which, I mean, I don't want to um, put words in your mouth, but you came across as a little bit alarmed about a month ago. Yeah, so that's true. So to answer your best question, I think Australia has done a remarkable job. Um, mm-hmm. We've seen all of the measures put in by the government, closing the borders, things like that. But really, that second phase was the community's response to this problem. And it's the community that has to understand what the problem is, which is you know, a, a very contagious virus, mm-hmm. and what to do about it, and then be prepared to go into their homes and stay there and adopt some very unusual practices, not touching each other, washing your hands. Those things are very unusual for our day-to-day lives. So. Mm-hmm. The curve is very, very flat. So the number of, we've seen the number of cases fall, fall, fall. It's now hit a plateau again. So we're seeing about the same number of cases, new cases every day. And so we've done an incredible job to prevent that first surge that everybody was concerned about. Um, when we talked about the risk that we could have an outbreak that looked like Spain or Italy here, it's chicken and egg stuff because if you don't do anything, if we just continue to live life exactly the way we did everything in our everyday lives, then it's possible that this virus could have caused an outbreak that looks like Italy and Spain is possible. But it's only through people's actions, everybody, the community in particular, um, that we've managed to prevent that. So our curve is very flat. So that's brought us an incredible amount of time to prepare the hospital system for when there is an increase in cases. And so, yeah, I think the country's done incredibly well. With the flattened curve, the expectation, I guess, is that it there will be a spike again. So, yeah, so a completely flat curve would be zero cases, yep. new cases per day, right? So that yep. really means that you've got it completely, right? So that's not what's going on. So there is yep. still low, very low levels of community transmission going on in the community. So that's why we're seeing new cases every day. And that is yep. the thing that concerns everybody. Yep. And I guess the way to put it is that you still see the government planning to increase the number of intensive care beds. So if everything was perfectly fine, they wouldn't be doing that, right? Yep. So what that tells you is that there's still going to be an increase in cases to the point that the hospitals will need to be treating a lot of COVID-19 patients. Yep. But the, the whole point of our action six weeks ago or four weeks ago is that it lowers the, the, the height of the surge and it delays it, pushes it back in time to give the hospital system time and space to prepare and cope. Have you seen anything quite this contagious in, in, in your work before? So that's a really interesting question. When I was a medical student, measles was a disease of textbooks. We didn't see any cases clinically because we had such great vaccination rates. And so as a medical student, I just thought that this was one of those diseases that had been consigned to history. And so it wasn't until 2008, about maybe 10, 12 years ago, that I saw my first case of measles. And what people don't realize is that measles is way more contagious than COVID-19, than SARS, SARS-2. So it just goes to show you that if you drop vaccination rates, and we've had a big surge in the anti-vaccine movement in the last 10 to 15 years, which is one, one thing that immunologists definitely battle against. Um, if we drop, <laughs> if we that's, drop your, vaccination, that's your enemy. That is your, that is yeah, your exactly. number one well, enemy. Well, they're not, they're not our enemy. They're people with a view, and we need to... <laughs> 
continue to you know talk to them respectfully and you know earn back their trust, right? That's it's actually very important that we don't yeah belittle people too much because then you just push them away. Yeah, yeah. So I'm yeah. So now we you know people see measles in the emergency department. Sick children, horrendous rash, fever, and all the complications of measles. We've had people die of measles. Uh, measles mm. is a is a deadly disease. And so really? um, we're seeing small cases of that, but it just goes to show you what happens when we drop vaccination rates. Otherwise, look, you know, we had a couple of previous pandemics. We've had swine flu, things like that. And the closest two viruses to this virus, things like SARS, obviously, and MERS, um, they are great examples of where public health measures were able to completely squash the virus and contain it to one region of the world. And it did not become a global pandemic. So obviously, there are many lessons to be learned with this virus, because obviously, you know, whatever systems that we've set up globally, obviously, weren't good enough to contain the virus. This virus is a nasty one. Do you think the uh, economy has also changed a lot of global economy in that, you know, when those viruses were around and contained, we probably didn't have that much kind of passage from those countries to to our countries? Oh, totally, totally. Yeah, it's levels of contagion. So to start with, you have a viral pandemic, right? So you have a medical problem. And then if you don't control the medical problem, it's spilled over into an economic and then a social problem, right? Mm-hmm. So it's important to discuss all of those things together. But it's very important to realize that the medical problem is the root of the other two problems, your economic and social problems, right? Mm-hmm. So you, we shouldn't have a conversation like there are three equal problems. Um, the medical problem, the viral problem, is the heart of the problem. And until you fix that problem, um, you're not going to be able to, you know, fix your economic and social problems. And that, that's exactly what we're seeing here. All the conversations going on about how we get out of the situation. Um, you know, we're balancing lives um, because people die from COVID-19 and livelihoods, which is an economic issue. Um, and we're trying to get that balance right. But the truth is, until we fix the medical problem, we're not going to be able to solve the economic or social problem. Dan, we know that this is a virus that came from the animal kingdom. It made the jump from either a bat or a pangolin to a human in a wet market in Wuhan. Mm. What makes this virus different to other coronaviruses? How is this able to make the jump from the animal kingdom into, into mankind? Yeah, that's a really good question. So coronaviruses are a large family of viruses. Um, lots of animals are able to carry coronaviruses, but it doesn't make those animals sick. So that's, that's a really strange problem. A virus which makes its carrier host, um, you know, it doesn't do much to that yep. host, can make a human incredibly sick, right? Um, and that's because we have different immune systems. So usually what happens is that viruses mutate over time. That's perfectly normal, right? The flu mutates so much that we have to make a new flu vaccine every year. That's how quickly yep. uh, influenza mutates. This virus mutates at a lower rate, I guess. But at some stage, it developed the properties of being able to jump into people. And this is a very unusual virus in the way it causes such a diverse range of illness in humans. So it's actually the Goldilocks set of characteristics for a disaster, right? It's completely asymptomatic in 25, 50% of people, no symptoms at all. So they can go around and shed it and give it to other people, but not be sick. And, but it still puts 10 to 15% of people in hospital, 5 to 10% of people in intensive care, and kills 1 to 2% of people. So it's just got that horrendous set of characteristics, um, which makes it incredibly contagious, but also deadly to enough people that it quickly overwhelms the health system when you unleash it in a population that has no immunity to it at all. Can you tell us a little bit about the coronavirus uh, community transmissions a little bit? I mean, it, it seems like a lot of the graphs were showing, you know, at 90% 
uh, compliance, the social distancing measures, we might we might be able to ease back in 60 days and, and at 80%, maybe 90 days, and then 70%, you can't control it. Uh, yeah. What do you... What do you think we're at right now in terms of compliance? I mean, it's hard to know what everyone's doing in every suburb. Yeah. What is the understanding in the medical fraternity of how Australians are doing at this? It's too early to know. Mm-hmm. So with the number of community transmission cases creeping up very slowly, too early to know, right? So I think what we do need to do is to get smart and use some technology to kind of look at this. And I know some companies have started to do it. For example, your iPhone, you know, we track people's movements on um, freeways and things like that. And we can get a pretty good idea of people's adherence to social distancing and social isolation that way. Um, there are some privacy issues and things that we have to be really mindful of and not give up in the process of that. The answer is I think it's too early to tell in Australia because the number of community transmissions is very low. And so we just need to wait and see whether that continues to increase at sort of a rate that will double every eight or nine days or whether that comes down. So it's really too early to tell. Is wearing a mask just as good as keeping your distance from people? There's two things I think about masks. One is kind of a sociological thing and the other one's kind of like medical and scientific. I'll deal yeah. with the medical and scientific stuff first. So scientists like to prove things, right? So they have a hypothesis, they do an experiment, they want to know. So there's some recent data that has clearly shown that if you have a mask on, obviously, the distance that you can cough out viral particles is less because it obviously hits the mask. Now, that's just basic common sense, really. One of the concerns is that when we cough, we can actually expel viral particles much further than we originally thought. It may even exceed the sort of social distancing distances that we've asked people to keep. Um, so that is a reason. So there's a build, there's building scientific evidence that wearing a mask is going to be useful, especially once you get to a stage where more people have the virus. So at the moment, we have very low numbers of transmission events, which means we have quite a low infection rate. So asking the whole population to wear a mask is probably not the most useful strategy. But if you were in New York right now, where they're having a major outbreak, like lots and lots of people with the infection, then it probably is protective for people to, to cover their face because, you know, their chances of spreading the virus are less. So it's also dependent on the specific context of your outbreak. That's the sort of medical answer. And I think people are doing more and more research to try and work out whether masks are actually effective. I think they will be shown to be effective. And I think it's really common sense, right? If this is a virus that comes over your face, like your nose, your mouth, when you cough, breathe, talk. And so covering it, if you are infected, probably helps to reduce transmission. But, you know, we need to prove that with a whole bunch of experiments, which is interesting. So on a sociological level, I I mentioned this in my earlier interviews, which is that in January, when the people of Hong Kong heard about the novel coronavirus in Wuhan, they just all started wearing masks. And the government didn't tell them to do that. The reason they did that is that that community, that country, went through SARS. Mm -hmm. So that's a completely different situation to Australia. That is a group of people that are deeply experienced in how to deal with this problem, right? And so... From my point of view, at least in Asia, the mask is a symbol. It's a symbol that people understand the problem and know what to do. And so I talked about how people in Asia kind of have two modes, right? They have okay mode and then isolation mode. And so for them, isolation mode is the same as it is here. You stay at home, wash your hands, don't touch other people. But in Asia, they also wear a mask. And when I see the whole street full of people wearing masks, I'm like, okay, that is a country. That is a community. I'm looking at people that understand the problem and know what to do, right? So the start of this thing 
was that everyone was talking about what the government was doing, what, you know, the policy was, all of this kind of stuff. And that's really important. But what's even more important is that we brought the Australian public up to speed because they had not been through this before and told them what the problem was and explained to them what the problem was and what the solution was, right? It's always good to do something because you understand the problem and you want to be part of the solution rather than being told by the government or somebody else what to do, right? So the mask is an interesting sociological thing too. I feel like in a lot of the parts of the world, when you see someone with a mask on, it's, they're viewed with suspicion in some way. In Asia, it's very different. If you ask someone why they're wearing a mask, it's usually because they are sick. They're like, oh, I've got a bit of a cough or a cold. Mm. And so I'm wearing this mask to protect everyone else. In other words, it's done with good intention and with other people's best interests at heart, right? Yep. So I think, that, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting phenomenon. And uh, I'm not saying everyone in Australia should wear a mask at the moment. It is possible if we have a big outbreak that the government will change their mind in a few months, right? Because yep. I think in a few months we'll have more scientific evidence about what masks do. As yep. you know, um, in America, they've told everyone to put, put a mask on. The US CDC has changed their mind on that. So it's possible, right? Um, and I just think that people should keep an open mind about that and realize that when you put on a mask, you're doing it to, to protect yourself. But also because 25 to 50% of people don't know they have the infection, they have no symptoms, um, you're actually protecting everyone around you when you wear the mask. So it, it's a two-way thing. Yeah. Mm. So do you think that maybe the perception of masks in the Western world might change after this a little bit? I think so. I think so. It's one of those things. Once you've worn a mask, so I've been wearing a mask for about a month, but I take the train quite a long way to work every day. I, I think the perception will change because it's one of those things. Once you've worn one yourself, right? Um, so yeah. some very strange things happen to you when you, when I wore, wear a mask uh, down the street, people kind of like circle around me when they walk past me. They'll like go another couple of meters away from me. I'm like, good, right? Good. Just socially distancing, <laughs> right? Whereas when I'm not wearing the mask, they'll walk, you know, one foot from me so i think people once you do it yourself then you realize why you're wearing it then i think the way you view other people wearing one will change right and i don't see that as a, as a bad thing i think it's a really good thing it is a shame we might have uh, used up most of our masks during the bushfire season but i think there's more on the way and we're manufacturing them day by day dr dan i want to uh now see if we can dispel or kind of add merit to some of the myths that have been going around obviously a lot changes day to day during a pandemic policy definitely does and uh, just attitudes in general but there were a couple of things early on that might have added to the complacency uh, just and not just in Australia around the world particularly in some more equatorial countries there was the myth being kind of circulated that coronavirus doesn't last very well in the heat and as well as that, there was also the myth that, oh, your kids are all right. The kids aren't going to suffer from it. And, of course, hmm. the, uh, the asymptomatic element that majority of people are going to have a mild case. What have you kind of come to learn? And uh, where, where does everyone kind of stand on all that now? Uh, we've only known about this virus for three months. So it takes yeah. us quite a while right, mm. to work out the answers to those questions, right? Mm -hmm. The first, I, I wouldn't call it a myth because we don't know yet, is about temperature. And I guess being a coronavirus and being a respiratory virus, it may adopt some of the characteristics of other seasonal viruses, right? Like colds and flus. And it may be that once it's been around the world and been part of the endemic viral things that infect people for some time, that it may adopt a seasonal thing. But this is, this is a very different situation. This is a completely new virus that's uh, being let out into a community that has no immunity. So that is a devastating situation. It doesn't matter what time of year that happens. 
So that's not the most important priority. It may turn out much later on in 10 years' time that there is a seasonal variation, but that's not the thing that matters right now. The thing that matters right now is that no human on Earth has immunity to this virus, and therefore it will just spread like wildfire and cause infection in everybody that it touches. So that's the first thing. The second thing you mentioned, sorry, was... Was age, the, the myth of oh, age. Oh, yeah, 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 age. It is true that very young people don't appear to get that sick. Again, we have to look at the data that we have. So in, in the Wuhan outbreak, they had an extremely low rate of death in people under the age of 10. It is actually, this is one of the reasons why the uh, government left schools open, because there was actually no evidence that this was a serious infection in children. And, and it was safe to leave schools open, right? So uh, there's no way the government would have left schools open if it wasn't safe for the children, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that statement is actually true. Now, here's the problem. If you let a virus out into the community, if it infects huge numbers of people, there will always be the exception to the rule, right? You're going to get, you know, someone really young that gets really, really sick. And, of course, that always makes the news, and that's the thing that scares parents, right? But on the numbers, it's true that in the vast majority of youngsters, this is a mild illness, or they don't even feel sick at all. So that statement is actually true. When we talk about young people, though, we're also talking about people in their 30s and their 40s and their 50s. And that is definitely true that uh, we've seen a huge number of people under the age of 60, say, from, right, um, in intensive care and dying from COVID-19. So the original myth that this was, you know, just like uh, influenza, it's going to make people grandma, grandpa in the 70s and 80s, that is definitely untrue. We've seen huge numbers of people in their 50s, 40s, 30s very sick from this virus. And so that's a different thing to, to what we're discussing regarding the children, right? And the third myth you, you wanted to discuss? Uh, the asymptomatic percentages oh, yeah. of asymptomatic, I guess you'd say, yeah. uh, cases. Yeah, that's a scientific question. Yeah, so, <laughs> that, so that is something that you actually need to do some science, right? So you mm-hmm. actually need to go and test people who have no symptoms. So mm-hmm. in, at the start of a viral pandemic, remember, we had to make this test from scratch. Of course, you use the test to test sick people, Right. So you just don't know. It wasn't until they did some bigger studies. The classic study was the one in Iceland because the whole population lived around the capital, Reykjavik, that they were able to sequence just a whole lot of completely well people. And then they were like, oh, my goodness, half the people who tested positive had no symptoms at all. That's, yeah. that's crazy for a virus like this, right? So that, that's a scientific question. And so I guess, you know, there's a lot of assumptions. So at the start of this thing, people were making a lot of assumptions. And I guess that's where the myth-making comes from. But it always takes science a little time to ask those questions properly. And aren't we glad we've got you there? But there's just one thing I want to talk about, age. Um, yeah, yeah. I read this morning that the biggest age demographic that has COVID-19 are girls aged between 20 and 29. That is that's correct. In Australia, um, that's, that's, yeah, yeah, and that's, that was also true of other um, analyses of Girls other in different countries. <laughs> gross. <laughs> I, I'm not going there. I'm not, I'm not going there. Um, so yeah, so uh, we knew that we had to talk to young people in this particular pandemic, right? And it's not about blame; it's the fact that when you're in your twenties, you're, you're doing a lot of things yeah. where mm. you know you're incredibly social. Um, you hug and you kiss a lot of friends, you probably share a beer, you do a lot of things where there's direct and indirect contact between people. You know, you go out and party, you go listen to your favourite DJ, things like that. Yeah. And you do those um, things you, overseas. With huge numbers you know, of people, yeah, exactly. And, yeah. You, and you travel, and so that particular age group, just because of how social they are, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what I meant. It's such a strange situation to explain to people that 
you know, you live your life a particular way. And then now we're telling you just by doing that, just by going out of your home and doing what you normally do, it's now deadly to mm-hmm. many, many other people. It's a deeply distressing and disturbing thing to explain to people. And so, but it's very important that we talk to young people properly and in a way that, you know, doesn't, it's not about blame, but it's about explaining a very, very peculiar situation that we've never been through in living memory and explaining why we have to change our behavior. Otherwise, many, many other people will get sick. And, you know, if you're in your 20s, the chances that you would fall very sick from COVID-19 are extremely low, right? But that's what I mean. It's not about the individual person. It's about what happens to the rest of society. And I find it incredibly easy to explain to people because you just talk to them about their parents and their grandparents and parents and grandparents of their friends. And once they realize that their behavior potentially put at risk the health of other people that they love, um, it becomes very easy to change your behaviour, actually, um, because you're highly motivated to do so. Personally, I blame Carrie Bradshaw from Sex and the City for the uh, spike in uh, <laughs> young girls aged 25 to 29. They've all flown back here from Brooklyn and they're uh, hiding at mum and dad's, potentially spreading <laughs> and COVID. Just, <laughs> and they're just coughing on people, aren't they? <laughs> as long they as cough they're on each other. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now, um, there's one question I do want to ask because we're going to see a lot more of this in the news. Um, And this might draw on um, maybe some uh, medical disciplines that you haven't really kind of specialised in in your career. But just in in your opinion, with these cruise ships, we've seen basically what's happened is what they can say in these investigations, particularly in the Ruby Princess, what they can say is there was a mistake that was made, uh, messages got mixed up and boat full of... COVID-19 infected boomers unloaded in Circular Quay. Now, who, who knows really what you're meant to do in that circumstance? What do you think? Is, is there a playbook for this when we do have something like that sitting in Sydney Harbour or, or in, the, in the mouth of Brisbane? Like, what is the play? Do you, send, do you send medical crews on? Surely this has happened before with some form of uh, kind of contagious illness. So the answer to your question is I don't know, right? Mm-hmm. As far as I'm aware, with the SARS and MERS outbreaks, the most similar recent things, there weren't, we didn't have this cruise ship problem. So the answer is we didn't have a pre-prepared playbook, right, mm-hmm. to work on this problem. But I'm sure that we will develop one now, right? Mm-hmm. So we always say so everything's so easy in retrospect. It's so easy to be really critical of everybody, mm-hmm. right, um, when, when something happens, when a mistake is made or something. But the truth is that it was a completely unprecedented situation and there were just so many unknowns. There were so many things we didn't know uh, and everything was moving so quickly. So these pandemics moved so quickly. So I, I always say it's very easy to be, to be critical, and it's, but that's not the important point. The important point is to fix the problem. So, you know, we had that problem, but the mistakes, you know, then we, we knew we had a cruise ship problem. <clears throat> and so we've really dealt with every other cruise ship very differently, right? And so we haven't had a repeat of the problem. The problem, the medical lesson was learned very quickly. The second element to the thing is, can we do it better? Definitely. And I'm sure, you know, um, in the fallout of the investigation, that there'll be a whole bunch of recommendations which will be adopted. The country to look to, I think, is Singapore, which is a country which is very small, and they've been through several kind of viral things before. They have an incredibly well-prepared system, have a national plan, the government has there's a whole hospital just for pandemics. Like, So I think in the wake of this, we're going to need to review all of those things that will happen at the right level of, of government with all the relevant experts advising, and, and we'll be much better prepared the next time. Good to know. Good there. That is good to know. It's, it's, like, it's like any disaster in Australia, though. We need a, we need a big one before we, uh, we have a playbook. <laughs> 
We went from, uh, well, globally now I'm talking, first three months uh, since this virus first came into existence to get to 500,000 cases worldwide. From there, it took eight days to get to a million. Now it looks like it's going to get, it's going to double from there in less than eight days. So it looks like it's going to go from a million to two million in less than eight days. That is now moving, obviously, 200% faster each week. Mm-hmm. Where, where do you think are going to be the biggest hotspots worldwide? Where, where do you think? Yeah. So the numbers that you're reporting, it's just the classic numbers for a global pandemic, right? Yeah. And, but you're also seeing a few things. Firstly, there are just more cases the virus is spreading. But every country is increasing its capacity to test right? Yeah. So as you test more, you're going to pick up more cases, right? Okay. The, so with numbers, you can follow the numbers, but what's even more important than numbers sometimes is experience, right? Mm-hmm. And so the experience of every country so far is that around two weeks after you enforce a hard lockdown, the cases, the curve really starts to flatten, right? So yeah. it takes about two weeks to do that. So a huge proportion of the world, more than half the world is in some kind of lockdown at the moment. And so hopefully by doing that, by countries taking a proactive stance with lockdown, um, we can minimize the number of global deaths in this first upswing, right? So hopefully we start to see that global curve level off. But one of the reasons why it won't is because we're doing so many more tests. So we're just going to pick up more cases, right? So that's the way that that's going to go. Um, there, there is literally no other way at the moment to control this problem other than to enforce some kind of lockdown. And the lockdown is really just enforced social isolation, right? So social isolation, the thing we've been discussing, keeping away from other people is the answer. You know, I was talking about people's personal responsibility to do that and understanding the problem and doing it yourself. But lockdowns are sort of government enforced, okay? Your social circumstances partly determine whether you are able to socially isolate. Um, And there's been a really great conversation talking, you know, how lucky we are in Australia about how much space we each have, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, some parts of the world, particularly the extreme opposite, you know, the places in India where people live in huge, huge slums, right? Mm -hmm. They cannot wash their hands. They cannot socially distance themselves. It's just not physically possible. Mm -hmm. Um, And so social isolation is a privilege, right? We have the ability to do it and we should be grateful for that. So I think what you'll see is that this was a disease that started in China. Then it, we saw South Korea and Iran have outbreaks, and then now the sort of uh, northern Western Hemisphere. The next hotspots will be the developing world, right? Mm-hmm. Indonesia, India, Brazil. And these are countries with very densely packed populations, very poor healthcare systems. Yeah, so that's the ones that we are really fearful, that we will see huge loss of life. And we won't even have the, they don't have the capacity to test, right? So we'll never know the true toll of, of lives in this pandemic because there are some places that just won't be able to test. So that's definitely the, the next thing that we're looking at. We are, we're reasonably confident that Europe has its problem under control in that most of Europe is in lockdown. And so it's just a matter of time before those cases level off. So we see that happening in Spain, Italy, um, in terms of cases and deaths. America still doesn't have a national lockdown, right? They're doing it state by state. And so you'll see that problem evolve. So you'll go from New York and then there's a huge problem brewing in Detroit and New Orleans. So, so that country's problem will be spread out over many months, but you'll see a rolling series of, of, of catastrophes across different cities. 
So I think, yeah, you, we'll, we'll see it play out very differently in different countries, cities and regions. And the dominant question in a viral pandemic is when the government locked down, right? The earlier yep. you lock down, look at Australia, right? Look at New Zealand. New Zealand was way ahead of the curve, right? Um, and they're going to do great. So they are one of the few countries that could possibly eradicate this virus by lockdown and testing because they locked down at such an early stage. It's possible, right? Yeah. If New Zealand is able to do that, and I'm not saying that they will be able to, but if they could do it, they could do something remarkable, which is that if they really get their cases to zero, they could reopen the domestic economy. Everyone could go back to normal life, but the international borders stay closed and they could like basically live normal lives, right? Whilst the rest of the world is in this kind of half lockdown you know, you're releasing the brake, putting the brake on, releasing the brake, you know, situation until a vaccine is found. So full kudos to, to Jacinda Ardern in having the foresight and the leadership to lock down hard really early. I, I really hope that they're able to do it. And that would be an incredible model to look at in terms of, you know, how we deal with future, future pandemics. So just we'll ask you one more question, then we'll let you get back to your very important work. Is the only real pathway back to life as we knew it in the time before the coronavirus, is the only way back there basically through a vaccine then? Yeah, so this is an interesting question. So the vaccine is by far and away the most likely way out of this quagmire, right? Yep. The really senior people at CSL and Johnson Johnson have said it's a minimum of 12 months away, and that's if everything goes right, right? I'm sure mm-hmm. with you know complete global effort, we can push that time frame even a little bit faster. But, you know, we're talking about that time frame, which is a really long time, right? So the other way is to attempt to let the virus out a little bit at a time, what we call developing community herd immunity. But the problem with this virus, as I discussed, is that if you're not immune to it, it still has that set of characteristics. It's fine in some people, it makes some people really sick, puts them in hospital and then intensive care. So it's a really difficult alternative, right? If you can't get rid of the virus in the way that I described with New Zealand, completely squashing it, eradicating it, then we're really waiting for a vaccine. There is one other way out, which is if they find an antiviral agent that stops people from getting very sick. In other words, um, you know, you, you, you catch the virus, fine, you have a fever, you get tested, and you're not feeling well. If we can find an antiviral agent or something that stops you from getting very sick. In other words, we don't cause a massive crush of intensive care beds. That would also be an acceptable way out in that you could let the virus spread into the community, but be able to treat the group of people um, who are sick and prevent them from ending up in ICU, right? But, you know, Mm -hmm. we don't have an agent like that yet, but that is the other way out other than a vaccine. Right. So you don't think we're having that conversation in Australia that sounds like uh, New Zealand are working towards you don't think that Australia in, uh, you know, we've got a few interesting weeks to get through, namely this Easter weekend, but yeah. you, don't think that, you don't think that we'll be having that conversation about potentially uh, no. resolving this through lockdowns and uh, testing? Uh, so I think a lot of people, experts in epidemiology, have, you know, discussed the different ways out and, you know, a complete squashing of the virus, total eradication from the continent is possible, but... It's very difficult, and the chances of success are unknown, right? So it's like, um, you know, I guess uh, the way I think about it is like the first, when they decided to go to the moon, right, put people on the moon, they didn't know that it was possible or that the mission would be a success, but they decided to do it. It's a little bit like that. The conversation is definitely happening, right, amongst uh, epidemiologists and um, those experts, 
about whether it's possible in Australia. So Australia has two things going for it. It's an island continent, and so we have total control of our borders. Mm-hmm. Um, that is key. Number two, we have a very well, a, a low rate of infection at the moment, right? We don't look like Spain, Italy, or New York, but it's very difficult. We have a very large country, and so the problem with the process of eradication is that you really can't get it wrong. You can't miss any cases because if you do it, you know, if you go a hard lockdown, that has an incredible cost associated with it. And, you know, you do a heap of testing, you roll out community testing. Now, when you take everything off, if you missed, you know, a number of cases and then the virus spreads again, then you've gone through all of that. You're going to have to lock down again at some stage. And you've gone through that whole process with all of the costs. And it didn't work, right? So it's, it's like the moon landing. It's possible that, you know, a disaster happened. It's possible that, you know, they didn't make it there. So it's a really, really deeply complex conversation. But we are having it. People are literally modeling and working through is it possible to eradicate um, this virus from Australia? But I guess the, the government probably came to the view that it's unlikely, which is why they've kind of come out with this six-month package. They think the most likely way through probably is that we're just going to have to sit tight for a vaccine. I, I think that's what's going on. But the conversation is definitely happening uh, amongst people who know what they're talking about. Well, Dr. Dan, you've um, instilled a, a, a lot of uh, confidence, I guess, in uh, both Errol and I, but also um, you've shared a lot of information that I, I just don't think has been that accessible over the last few months, uh, last few scary months, may I add. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Dan, and uh, we look forward to reading more of your stuff and seeing more of you in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we'll be in touch. <laughs> no problem. Yeah.